Okay, everybody, good morning. You can take your seat. We'll rise again in a minute here to say the creed, but I did have one quick announcement for you. Uh, Pastor Colin, thanks for leading that moment of prayer for our Manitou Springs congregation. Um, we are, um, I can't remember if you said it in your little spiel, but we say there were seven congregations. What's that? You said many. That's what you say. Well, it's a biblical number here. And I like that, but many is good. Seven congregations, five locations, speaking three different languages. So English, Spanish, and then we have a Chinese church. I don't know if you know that. Pretty amazing. And it's just a beautiful work of God that's happening here in our church and in our city. And uh, we've been so privileged to be part of it. New Life Church in the next uh, couple months here is going from seven congregations. This is, by the way, the big amazing surprise that I wrote about in the email in case you get that email. How many of you know you don't get the email? Okay, it's all good. It's all good. Okay, there you are. The remnant gets it here. Um, the big announcement is that we're moving from seven congregations to eight congregations in the next couple months, which is amazing news. There's a church in our city, Antioch Church. They've been doing good ministry here for a long time, and uh, they've been pastored by Jade and Christy Duncan, who are good friends and many of us on staff. In fact, we've got deep roots with them. Some of us were kind of at ORU back in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the late 90s, early 2000s, about the same time as them. And we've watched in the last couple of years the Lord do a really special work between our two congregations, knitting hearts together in a way that is more than just the usual friendliness that you should show towards other churches. It's a real sense of shared ministry and shared calling in the city. And so in the last year, lots of patient, careful discussion, we decided that the best thing to do, uh, that the Lord was moving us to kind of the next step with them. And so we're merging with them as a congregation and Antioch Church starting on Palm Sunday, is going to relaunch as New Life Midtown, which is amazing. They're located at Austin Bluffs and Academy, and it gives us another presence really close to the city. So you're going to hear more about them and see more of their faces around here. But it's a beautiful thing, and so I want you to receive them with your spirits and also just in your hearts to give God praise for what he's doing in our city. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. What? Just think about it. One year ago, we were launching, and then here we are one year later, and we're moving now to eight congregations, and it's just a wonderful thing. So uh, thanks be to God for that. Can I get an amen? amen? Let's stand together and declare our faith as we prepare to open up the scriptures and get into the minor prophets here. Let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. 
Amen. You can be seated. We say that the Holy Spirit has spoken through the prophets. And we have been preaching through the minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. What comes after Jonah? Micah. And it's Valentine's Day. And so we're preaching on Nahum this morning. Nahum is a wonderful book on the wrath of God and no better day to preach on the wrath of God than on Valentine's Day. Some of you that don't have a date today, you feel like you're under the wrath of God and I'm going to set you straight this morning. But Nahum is actually a beautiful book. It gives testimony to the great love and the great goodness of God. Nahum prophesied uh, at a time when the southern kingdom of Judah really felt like they were under threat. You might remember if you know your history that the northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 B.C. to the Assyrian army, which I'll talk about a little bit in a second here. The Assyrians were very brutal, very large, very powerful, and very scary. And in 622 B.C., so about 100 years later, there was one of the best kings that Judah ever had, King Josiah. You remember reading about King Josiah? A succession of very terrible kings. And then all of a sudden, this young man, he becomes king when he's eight years old. King Josiah comes along. And Josiah has a heart for the Lord. They rediscover some of the old traditions and patterns of obedience. And the southern kingdom of Judah really goes through this revival where they come back to the Lord. And while they're in the midst of this revival, they're also staring to the north and they see this looming threat cascading down upon them. They had watched their brothers and sisters in the north be hauled away into exile. And as they're in the middle of this tender space with the Lord... They're wondering what's going to become of them. Do we have a good future, God? And so Nahum comes along and he preaches to them a message about the wrath of God that is actually very good news for this southern kingdom of Judah. And it's also very good news for us. Nahum's name, do you know what it means? Do we have any Bible scholars in the room? Hey, good job. Now you get two gold stars today because you showed up on a cold day and you know the meaning of Nahum. Great job, Ron. I appreciate that, man. Give it up for Ron DiLorenzo there in the second row. (laughs) If you didn't hear him say it, Nahum's name means comfort. Comfort. And in the midst of this message on the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, Nahum is intending that God's people are going to discern a message of God's comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you still speak. That's what the scripture says about you, that you are the one who speaks now, not just in the past, but you speak now through the words of scripture. And so that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that you, Spirit of the living God, would pick up these words of the old prophet Nahum, that you would make them a living word for us today, wherein we can discern what is going on in our lives and what you're speaking to us in the here And the now, and we say, as always, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, 9.37 a.m. Here we go, Andrew Arndt. Keep it brief. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power, and he's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, and it dries up, and he makes all of the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, just like we sang. And the hills melt away. 
The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. uh, The rocks are shattered before him. And the Lord Yahweh is, what does the text say? He's good. He's good. So whatever else we're going to say about God and Nahum, we need to understand this about God, that it's anchored in, Nahum's comments are anchored in a deep understanding of the goodness of God. Yahweh is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. This is the word of the Lord against the people of Nineveh and Assyria. Assyria was a great empire. In fact, in the 9th century BC, it emerged as the world's first true uh, empire spanning uh, way up into the north, all the way down into the south, into Egypt, very far east, and then it encompassed a great deal of the Mediterranean basin in the west. It was huge. And that wouldn't be a problem, except that the Assyrians were like very bad people. Uh, Their stated goal was to control the whole known world. They had the first professional military, in fact, the first standing army that was funded constantly. Um, And they took pride, the Assyrians did, in their brutal military tactics. So it wasn't just that they conquered other territories and nations, but their goal was to embarrass you and to humiliate you, to really tear your heart out. They boasted in maiming, decapitating, skinning, burning, and impaling their enemies. They actually took pleasure in taking some of the most inhumane forms of torture the world had ever seen and perfecting them, raising them to the level of an art form. And so the people of Judah are there in the south. They're in the midst of this revival, and they're looking north. They're trusting in God, and they're going, what is going to become of us? We have seen our brothers and sisters be dragged off by this vast army, and we're powerless to withstand them. What is going to become of them? And Nahum comes along, and he preaches this word, and he says, all of the evil that you have seen from Assyria, all the maiming, all the decapitating, all the burning alive and the skinning and the impaling and all of that stuff, that has not gone unnoticed by your God. He cares for you and he hates that. Then he's going to bring an end to it. Now what's interesting when you think about the minor prophets is that there was another minor prophet whose message, whose words, whose actions were aimed at Assyria and Nineveh. Do you remember who it was? Jonah. So remember that Jonah actually took a journey into the city of Nineveh proclaiming repentance, and it seems as though there was this great revival that happened among them. 120,000 citizens of Nineveh turned their hearts back to the Lord. But now here we come to a place where that, whatever happened in that revival, Nineveh has disregarded it, and they've gone back to their violent ways. And here we're at a point where the Lord is like, okay, I extended an olive branch to you. Do you repent and come back to me. And for a season you did that. But if you are determined to turn back to your evil ways, then I am determined to put a stop to it. God does not long tolerate evil in his world. Can I get an amen? And so Nahum brings a message on the wrath of God that really is an ext- it's a statement of the good news. It's gospel. It's, it comes out of a sense of the goodness of God. Look down at verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Although they, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, the Lord says, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break the yoke from your neck 
and tear your shackles away. Verse 15, look, there on the mountains are the feet of those who brings what? Good news, who proclaims peace. So celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you this morning, and this may sound shocking to your ears, but God's wrath, according to Nahum, God's wrath is good news. God's wrath is good news. Can I get an amen from somebody? Happy Valentine's Day. God's wrath is good news. Now, why is it good news? Why is it good news? We all know what it's like uh, to be mistreated. We all know what it's like to be bullied. We all know what it's like to feel powerless. Any of you ever had a bully in your life? Somebody that was just like, it felt like they were out to get you? Surely it's got to be more than just three of us in the room. It wasn't a rhetorical question. We all know what it feels like. I had a bully in my life. Uh, It was the eighth grade. It was the worst year of my life by far for so many reasons, both because it's eighth grade. Just can we testify here? And if there are any junior hires in the room and you're in the middle of the worst year of your life, just know it happened to all of us and you're going to get through it. You're going to be fine. And eighth grade was the worst year of my life. It was a terrible year. And part of the reason it was such a bad year is because we had uh, this kid. I went to this little private school and we had this kid come to our school, new family in town, sent their kid to the school. They thought that him being part of a Christian school would like reform his ways and actions. This guy was a disaster. He was like sent from the devil. Okay. <laughs> into Andrew Arndt's life to be a messenger of Satan to torment me every single day. And I, I'm, I'm going to change his name to protect the flagrantly guilty here, but his name, we're going to call him Nate today, okay? And Nate was sent, it felt like he was sent into my life just to torment me. And every, I don't know what it was. It was like the first time he laid eyes on me. He was like, oh, your life, I'm going to make your life a living hell. And so every day he would just cut, wander into the school And he would find new ways to either make fun of me or belittle me or to embarrass me in some way. You know, I remember being on a class trip in the eighth grade. We went to Washington, D.C. And I was in the hotel room calling to my parents, you know, checking in with my mom. I have my precious sweet mom on the phone. And and Nate busted into the room. I was on the phone with my mom. And he knew that I was on the phone with my mom. And so he started saying the most flagrantly awful things, just like yelling obscenities in the air, you know? Like, and my mom was going, who's that? Is that one of your friends, Andrew? And I'm going, no, no, shut up. Nate's a terrible guy. The worst thing that Nate did to me that year, God forgive him. So I was working on algebra homework, you know, with some friends. One day we had this little group and I had just finished up this worksheet and I felt really good about my work. And Nate came along and Nate goes, what are you working on there? And I said, algebra. And he said, can I see it? And before I had the chance to say, absolutely not, he snatched my algebra homework right away from me. And do you know what he did? He crumpled it up into a little ball and he put it in his mouth and he chewed it up and he swallowed it. (laughs) Nate ate my homework. You've heard of dogs eating the homework before, but a a school bully ate my homework. And I just, every single, and I would complain to my teachers and I would say, and they wouldn't even believe it. I remember telling one of my teachers about that. He ate my homework. And he'd go, well, show me your homework. I go, I can't show you. He ate it. There's nothing that I can do. There's no justice in the world. One day, and I would tell my parents about this kid and they weren't doing anything about it, you know, because they just thought that it was overstated and all of that. And I remember Nate actually showed up at my house one day. Don't bring your hell to my front porch. But he did. And he made nice with my mom. And my mom, at the end of the day, I could not believe the horror of having him at my house. 
And then by the end of the time there, he had acted so sweet with my mom that my mom was like, he's such a sweet kid. I don't understand what your problem with God Almighty, is there no justice in the world? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning Nate? Oh, it's such a powerless, awful feeling, you know? And the question, the question is, how does God feel about that? How does God feel about the bullies of the world? How does God feel about it when we are the objects of injustice, when bad things are happening to us? And we say in Christianity that God is love. And sometimes I think that when we say God is love, what we think is that Christianity is kind of advocating this giant kumbaya fest. Where God just up in the clouds and God just loves nice stuff and he's a nice guy. God is like an incurably nice guy. And then he wants us all to be nice to each other and not get kind of mad and upset. And we need to kind of turn a blind eye at the uncomfortable things of the world and because God is love, right? And we need to be a people of love. That's how we feel. And it just it gives the impression that it is a giant kumbaya fest. But I don't think that when we say God is love in Christianity, what we mean is that God is just kind of this sappy pushover. I think that we mean something far more robust. The great Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel, put it like this. He said that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is what? It's indifference. The very last thing that God is, is indifferent to the evil of our world. God being love means that he cares passionately about the evil of our world. He cares passionately when people are being mistreated and oppressed and abused. The great C.S. Lewis put it like this. In The Problem of Pain, he wrote that when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested because really indifferent concern for our welfare, but that in an awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, Lewis says, and you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, uh, the Lord of terrible aspect is present. And he's not, Lewis says, a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. It's not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests. But this is what God's love is. Listen to what Lewis says. God's love is the consuming fire itself. The love that made the worlds. Persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog. Provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I don't know. He says it passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory not only beyond our deserts, but also except in rare moments of grace beyond our desiring. Lewis says that when we say God is love, what we mean is that God is the consuming fire. And so how does God feel when Andrew Arndt in eighth grade is getting bullied by Nate? Well, God hates it. And that's not a different thing than God's love. In fact, because God loves Andrew, because God loves all of those that are being oppressed and mistreated in the world, God's love manifests itself. Remember what Nahum says, the Lord is good. He says he's good. 
He's a refuge in times of trouble, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. Is his overwhelming floodness and his refugeness, are those separate things, brothers and sisters? They're not. They flow from the same core of God's being. God is a wrathful God because he's a loving God, not in addition to God's being a loving God. Are you with me this morning? Anybody? Okay. God's wrath is good news for two reasons, and it indicates two things. Track with me this morning. It indicates, one, God's commitment to be our defender. Can we get a thanks be to God for that? God's wrath means, it indicates that God is committed to being our defender. And it indicates, too, his commitment to eradicate evil from our world. Can I get some amens in the house this morning? That's what I need. Come on. He's our defender, and it's his commitment to eradicate evil from his world. If you were here last week, you might remember the story that I told about giving... Uh, when we had Isabella Louise, Isabella is our third, and I had that profound moment where I just was weeping over my kids, desire particularly for my two older boys, that God would love them and take care of them with the care that we couldn't give for them. And that's the, remember that? And I wrote to my dad, and if you didn't, go back and watch the tape. It's a great story, and it tells really well. But I wrote to my parents about that, and remember my dad said back to me, he said, Andrew, now you know, dad. And that moment of recognition for me that that feeling of absolute commitment, okay, to the good of children, that's a feeling that starts all the way back up in the heart of God. Well, that feeling, I need to say to you this morning, just to drive the point home as clearly as I can, that feeling is not a sentimental, sappy feeling. And when I had that moment with my dad, Andrew, now you know, dad, what it did is it shifted the whole playing field for me. Because I remembered all of the times, not just that my dad was tender with me, but I remembered all the times that, that my dad acted, well, it was the wrath of dad, you know? All the times when he was crazy at me about patterns of behavior, but also all the times in our family when he defended us and took care of us. And that flows from his, it flowed from his commitment for us. And the amazing thing about that fathering love is that it, doesn't wax and wane. And when it's working the way that it should, it doesn't even really go away when your kids become grown kids. And I've learned this. It's like, like been one of the great things of my life that I've learned that my parents generally and my dad specifically is committed to being a defender for me all the way to the very end. I remember several years ago, uh, six or seven years ago now, Mandy and I were in the middle of a really dark season. And it felt like the deck was stacked against us and it felt like we were being mistreated by people who ought to have cared for us. And it just like, I, I don't know if you've ever been in those seasons where it feels like your world is imploding and everybody is against you and everything is against you. That's how it felt. And I remember, <laughs> I remember getting on the phone with my parents and starting to talk through the situation for, the, uh, for them and just help them understand it, mostly so that they could pray for us and stand with us in the middle of our difficult season, you know? And so I, I remember laying the whole thing out for my parents and my dad, I'll never forget this. My dad goes, well, Andrew, if you need me to, I will get in the truck right now and I will come down there and I'll sort this whole thing out. Yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> it's like, dad, I'm 35 years old. Okay. <laughs> I'm a grown man. I can handle it. But also that's kind of nice to know <laughs> that if it gets over my head, that I've got a defender, 
that I've got somebody in my back pocket, that I've got the ace in the hole. Dad will step in, you know, and dad is going to sort it out. And from beginning to end in the scriptures, the scriptures want us to understand that when we say that God is our father, that we mean that. God is our ace in the hole. God is the one who's committed to defending us. As the psalmist said, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, that you, O oh God, are strong and that you, O oh Lord, are loving. That the one, think about it, friends, that the one who loves us the most is also the strongest person in the entire universe and he's got our back. The psalmist said in Psalm 18, I love you, O oh Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my strong hold. And I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemy. The psalmist said, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I what? I called to the Lord and I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears and the earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows. He scattered the enemy with great bolts of lightning. He routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. Think what is happening here, guys. The Lord is tearing the world apart. And why is he doing it? The psalmist said that you're doing it for me. He reached after all of this tearing to pieces. Listen to what the psalmist says. He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. Guys, this is a Sinai moment. This is an Exodus moment. This is a plagues of Egypt falling on Egypt moment. Except this time, it's not happening for some mass of humanity out there. It's not happening for millions of people. How many people is it happening for? One person. That is the Lord's care for each one of us. He reached down from on high, he took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a what? A spacious place. And he rescued me because he delighted in me. He delights in you. Each one of you, as a father cares for his children, so the Lord cares for each one of you. And your situation has not escaped his notice. He knows what he's doing with your life. He knows the injustice that is stacked against you. He knows the way that you've been bullied. He knows the way that you've been the object of great injustice. And he is prepared to do something about it. Can I get an amen this morning? And that... God's wrath is good news. 
It means that he's coming for us in ways that we can't predict or calculate. And when we were in the middle of that situation that I told you about years ago, I remember it got to the point where it seemed like, I don't know if you've ever been in places like this, but it seemed like the story was completely over for us. We just went, oh, that's it. We're done. We're done. We're toast. It's over. Reputation going to be ruined. All that we work for is going to be ruined. It's all going to be over. And I remember, I remember so clearly in the middle of that season, sitting with a friend of mine on the back porch, getting ready to work through my lamentation. Game's over. Story's over. We're done. We've got to think up a new future, you know. And my friend sat on the back porch with us and he listened to us talk through the whole thing and he goes, no. <laughs> what do you mean no? He goes, I don't know, but just no. I, I don't know, how, how can you say that? He goes, I just don't think that God is going to tolerate that. Well, well he seems like he's tolerated it pretty good up to, this point, <laughs> up to this point. He goes, no, I just, I don't know what it is. He kept doing this with his hands. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like this thing is going to Bust open. I just think it's going to flip over. I mean, I've heard of faith, but I think that you're crazy. You know, one of the great theologians of the church said that God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. You know what that means? That means that if God can raise Jesus from the dead, it means that all bets are off. <laughs> it doesn't matter how stuck you are and how intractable the situation seems. What God specializes in is taking the impossible and all of a sudden making a new creation out of it. He takes Golgotha and he turns it into Easter Sunday. And we sat there with him and he goes, this thing's going to turn around. And within several days, in ways that we could never have calculated, all of a sudden the whole situation busted open and what seemed like the end of the story was the beginning of a brand new story. Brothers and sisters, this is just what our God does in the world. God, I want to say to you this morning, whatever the evil that you find yourself within, whatever feels stuck to you, God can be trusted to handle evil. He cares about it more than you do. And he cares for you more than you think he does. And he's coming for you, baby. Nahum chapter 3, Nahum finishes his prophecy by saying this to the king of Assyria, who was so powerful at that time. He says, king of Assyria, this is what's going to happen to you. Your shepherds are going to slumber and your nobles are going to lie down the rest and your people are going to be scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? At the time that Nahum said this, Assyria was the greatest nation on earth. Powerful, impervious, impregnable. And do you know what happened? In 629 BC, their king, Ashurbanipal, died. And it instigated a civil war among three rival kings inside of Assyria, throwing Assyria against all human calculation, throwing Assyria into complete chaos. All of a sudden, territories at the edge of the empire begin to revolt. And pretty soon, a coalition of forces decided in 612 BC to invade Nineveh, just like Nahum had prophesied. And the king of Nineveh was slain and his body lay dead in the streets. And all of that without the people of God having to lift a finger. This is what our God does. This is what our God does. And the fall of Nineveh, the death of the king of Nineveh, prefigures the great fall of evil at the end of all things. 
The story that we find ourselves in is a story in which God continually proves himself and will finally prove himself capable of and willing to handle all evil. Stand with me this morning. This is Revelation 12, looking towards the end of history. John writes this, that a war broke out in heaven and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he lost, he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon, that embodiment of evil in our world, brothers and sisters, the great dragon was what? He was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. And here's how they triumphed over him. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they love their lives not so much as to shrink from death. And therefore rejoice, you heavens and all who dwell in them. If you have faith in your heart this morning, would you join the rejoicing of the heavens and the earth and lift your voice in prayer and praise to God. We say thanks be to God for that. And now people of God, I, I just know that this morning there are some of you that are in a very stuck and hopeless place feels like injustice is against you. It feels like the deck is stacked against you. It feels like there is evil everywhere. And if that's you, would you offer that up to God? And if that's not you, would you just offer up all of the pain around you up to God and the pain of our world up to God? And we say now, over this, oh God, we say, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask that you would prove yourself strong again for your people we ask that you would make manifest your right arm, your strong arm, that you would throw down evil in our world, that you would throw down evil for your people, that you would establish the righteous again and make us secure and firm. And we pray that in between now and that moment, when your victory is made manifest, we pray that you would put faith in our hearts. So now as we lift our voices up in song to you, we pray that you'd build our faith once again. I grant that we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Let's sing this song of worship together, sing it with faith, and then Pastor Colin is going to lead us to the table. Thank you. 
gather your elements, these communion elements in your hand. God's wrath came to eradicate evil from the world. You know, John 3, 16, for all have sinned, for you have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Who is righteous? Not even one. We are evil. But the wrath of God, instead of falling on you, instead of falling on me, fell on Jesus. He took it for us in these elements that you hold in your hand. Would you just be thankful for that? Just hold these, look at them. Would you have the attitude of confession and humility in your spirit today? Thank you, Jesus, that all of your wrath fell on your son, Jesus, for me. We are so thankful for this gift. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup and he said this is the new covenant in my blood whenever you drink it do this in remembrance of me my friends would you take this this bread you just break it in your hands let's take it together God we receive this gift from you this cup Jesus was poured out for for your sins, the forgiveness of sins. Would you take and drink together? God, we respond to this gift with worship. God, we praise you for your faithfulness. so glad that you could spend this morning with us. 
Pastor Andrew, am I letting these wonderful people go? Good talk. <laughs> We're so glad that you got worship with us this morning. Remember, please stop by Connect Central if it's your first time with us. We have a gift for you. You can also join us at New Life Next if you feel like coming back in the cold. Now, would you receive the benediction this morning? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he make his face shine upon you, give you rest. Have a wonderful weekend.